This is SciBite, episode 117, for January 29th, 2014. everyone, and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live on a Wednesday this week and fresh on a Thursday, but not always. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So, what are we going to talk about tonight? Today, we're going to take a look at water vapor on a dwarf planet, driverless taxis, evening smartphone use, sensors in football helmets, spacecraft updates, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Well, Heather, why don't we kick it off with the news? Because I have a feeling our first story is going to make me a little thirsty. Okay, Heather, where are we starting? All right. Scientists have made their first like official definitive detection of water vapor on the largest and roundest object in the asteroid belt, Ceres. Huh? Now, it was the largest asteroid, but then when the whole renaming of everything and Pluto got knocked down to a dwarf planet, this is one of the things that got knocked up. Oh, so not everybody lost. No, not everybody lost. It was uh, actually Ceres. This object is one of the ones that was making it so hard for Pluto to be, you know, Pluto as a planet because comparing the two, it was like, how different are they? Right, I see. This guy was kind of uh, skewing the average and making Pluto look like he's not much bigger or littler than this guy. Yeah, not much, not too much more awesome. He was spotted, uh, it was the first big object discovered in the asteroid belt. And they said, oh, there's a planet there. And then over time, a whole bunch of other, like, oh, other things are there. And other, a whole bunch of other objects are there. And that kept going and going and going. Hmm. We have a mission going to this object, which they have actually seen plumes of water vapor that they believe are shooting up periodically from the surface. Wow. They have a a mission that is going to this location, going to be there spring of next year. Now, this is one that uh, NASA's Dawn mission, it went to um, the largest, well, the large, a large asteroid in the solar, in the belt uh, called Vesta. They went there and it did a whole bunch. It's been a year orbiting that and doing science. And now this is sort of their, you know, all right, our first, you know, bit of science is done. Now they shot off to Ceres. They'll be able to go to this to this dwarf planet and be able to kind of get some more out of uh, hmm. the spacecraft mission. So they're going to be able to be able to get some more in depth, close up views of what's going on. But for now, what they're able to do is see some far infrared vision. They can see very clear spectral signatures of water vapor, but they don't see it every time. So they're able to see it four different locations. Um, on another one, it wasn't there. It was all kind of variable. And it was what they're thinking is that it's as it swings through part of its orbit, it's a little bit closer to the sun. It's up. Yep. And so a little bit of portion of that icy surface becomes warm enough to become water vapor, and it can escape in plumes. And then when it gets into a different part of its orbit and it's a little bit cooler, then 
no water escapes. Right, because it cools down. It's away from the sun. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, now you know my first thought. Whenever you hear about uh, something like this, I'm thinking, okay, good. Now we get the spaceship and now we can go refill. Like we time it so we land just right. Of course, we'd have to launch at the right time so that way this thing's in the right position just at the spaceship. Anyways, they got the math to figure that out. They get there. They land on this thing. Everybody gets to get out. They do a little Bruce Willis digging and they take out some water, put it on the spaceship, and then they continue on to like Alpha Centauri or Vulcan or something. Okay, well, we'll we'll ignore the Bruce Willis reference. Okay, all right. We'll ignore the fact that we're stopping off at the asteroid belt to just fill up, just refill. Because I figure we'll probably the trip there they'll use up all their water, and it'd be silly Uh to put that much water on there because it would be hard to launch. So you it's sort of like stopping off at the uh, corner store on your way home. And oddly enough, it would be like stopping off at the corner store after the water has been turned off back home. This they believe. That, that through these measurements and now the stuff that they're charting to kind of filter through the data yeah. is that this, this is the first time that water vapor has definitely been seen, but they've kind of seen evidence of it so far. But it's showing more and more that the interior of this is rock and has a thick mantle of ice. So much ice that it may even be more fresh water than is on all of Earth. Whoa. So you can send lots of spaceships. I was like, <laughs> well, technically, yeah. Chris is trying to be funny. <laughs> but it's, you could but actually, it's, yeah. But it almost makes sense to be like, all right, why do we want to, you know, why not just fill up water after we get leave the house? Uh, I mean, it does. It is an interesting, it is an interesting concept. Uh, and, you know, the other thing, too, is that there's probably space fish. Now, they don't breathe <laughs> air and they don't fish. look like fish from here because they're space fish, but. And they're probably frozen half the time. <laughs> All right. Are there any other thoughts on that story? No, just kind of seeing uh, where the uh, Dawn mission brings us. Yeah, that will be interesting. Well, keep us posted, Heather, won't you? I'll, uh, let's keep an ear out for that. All right. Well, uh, let's take a quick break. We'll let Skype settle down over there. And I want to let you guys know about our new Instagram account over at Instagram.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. You can go over there and check out pictures of folks who got the new Jupiter Broadcasting swag and taking a picture and sending them in. We're going to be keeping this feed up to date with all kinds of pictures. You know, these server ones, I can't help but love these ones. You know, this is a server one with a sword. Okay, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that is uh, pretty epic. Uh, so, oh, here's one with a cat. Everybody loves a picture with a cat, right? So go to Instagram.com slash Jupiter Broadcast and check those out. And if you've got a Jupiter Broadcasting hoodie or one of those stickers we were uh, giving out last week, email a picture of it to Angela at JupiterBroadcasting.com so that way she can get it posted and you might just see it in a future episode of The Faux Show. Also, by the way, if you didn't know, you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and we have each show listed in there, like the SciBite show. You give us your subject, give us a message, and you send it in. And uh, you can also mark it as private or not, and we will read it on a future episode. If nothing else, our robots will process it accordingly and send it to the humans who it is intended for, which is at least better than I do myself. So Instagram.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for our Instagram account and jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact if you want to get a hold of this show or any of the shows. And you can also, by the way, find Heather on uh, Heather what? Twitter. Yeah. Twitter, Heather. Heather on Twitter at JB underscore Mars underscore base. I think I, think I got that right at some point. <laughs> All right, Heather. Well, why don't we hit the news bite? All right, so you might have guessed from the pre-show, I was a little excited about this story. We're going to talk about driverless taxis 
but not here in the U.S. No. See, what's the sad part is I didn't connect two and two until I read the intro again. <laughs> I was like, Chris is randomly talking about random. And then I realized, no, yeah. I'm talking about driverless taxis. Right, exactly. Here in a few minutes. <laughs> but no, they're not in the U.S. These are for our friends over in the European locations starting in February of this year, actually. There is a European Union-funded City Mobile 2 project. It is one of a number of different research initiatives that are starting to test out specifically designed self-driving road vehicles mm. to, you know, for navigation and such. Mm-hmm. And what this what, what uh, really brought this one to my attention is because there's a number of different ones, but they're they're kind of saying, oh yeah, we're going to be on the cheap. We're not going to have, you know, we don't need radar or anything. We're going to use what you know. We don't need gyroscopes or that stuff. We just can do it with just like one cheap camera and some Whoa. algorithm Whoa. technology. Well, it is interesting that they uh, they look like purpose built vehicles. Like they're not a repurpose of a Prius no. or a Mercedes M class. It is which or a Lexus, like what we've been seeing so far. These uh-huh. are cars that look like they've been fundamentally built up to be passenger vehicles with no driver. And and I guess if you're designing something with that in mind, you can take certain liberties in in maybe like the camera setup and things like that so maybe you could do something that you couldn't do with a regular car yeah but but the the whole carry thing is definitely what triggered me on this one because i was reading about it and i was like okay visual odometry you know take a picture move take a picture and you can tell exactly how far you've driven Hmm, if you've been listening to the show for a while might start to sound vaguely familiar if you are on mars (laughs) this is the same type visual odometry is what Curiosity Rover has been using mm. for some of its self-driving purposes. We talked about that back in uh, September of last year. You know, it is it's literally it, the same type of technology. I guess it makes sense that we do see stuff like that that's developed for the space program make its way into commercial use, uh, yeah. even if it's con- even if it's a concept level. And you know, me oh my, in our IRC chat room right now, points out that Google's obviously been thinking about this kind of thing too because they patented oh, yeah. an ad-powered taxi service that would allow shoppers to ride the taxi for free as long as they're looking at ads. <laughs> oh my gosh! So there you go. I, yeah, no, that's. There obviously there's the the Google stuff and there's a number of different pro- projects that are doing this, but the visual odometry is what triggered me yeah, off. Yeah, that's really because I was sitting there reading over it and I was like, wait a minute, this is what Curiosity is using. This is and it's and in fact it can use it much much simpler for them because their whole idea is to make it a uh, like a parking lot thing or so it's like on location. Or mm. right now, it's you know it's like at the airport, driving from here to there. You know, or there's companies in a city right at just like, downtown specific locations. Companies like Microsoft and Google, and probably lots of other ones that I just don't know. But Microsoft, I've seen firsthand here in Washington State, they have a taxi service on their campus that they drive people between buildings. So this would be perfect for that. Yeah, they actually have like a person. They have several. They have a, like a they have like a transportation department that has mm. multiple vehicles. They just drive all day. Crazy if you think about it. Yeah. Well, it's a big enough department, I suppose. Somebody needs it. <laughs> so what about like, so if these things are driving along, like how are they powered? Do they say? Is it batteries? Is it is it electrical cables? I mean, what yeah, are they? I believe, no, this is obviously not cables, but I believe this is uh, electric. Yeah, the V-charge. 
I yeah, it's the, so it's using this kind of a electric thing where it's oh V charge is like a it's like kind of like a standard that like several manufacturers have agreed upon. Yeah, I've heard of V charge before because I think yeah they're they're trying to get together and nail down all the hammer down all the nails about the safety of these things and hey if we take it to a downtown area now you know if it's in a parking lot or whatever you can lay out the pictures and say all right you know for the odometry you know on mars it takes pictures of a whole bunch of field of rocks and what's it going to see over the ridge we don't know until we get there on here on earth if you say i'm on you know row seven aisle b bam yeah there's a picture of where that should look like right and so they can do that type of thing or lay out strips on the on the parking lot road or whatever to be able to kind of give some visual check for the little driver for the vehicle but and then it's if you do it to a downtown then it's making it a little bit larger and then it gets into the whole all right how much guidance is going on or what kind of um braking systems what kind of control systems what do they need their own special lane how do they interact with the other cars if they don't so you're getting into the whole this into obviously it's the realm that multiple companies are doing this and it's sort of as each of them take it out onto the real world sort of beta t- beta t- uh testing these right. kind of things mm-hmm. and saying all right well now Whole new groups of people are needed to make rules and safety regulations for this stuff because it's not something that we've really needed to address until recently. Yeah. It's going to be a brave new world. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. Any other notes on that? Uh, no, just kind of seeing uh, where this and other projects like it uh, go. Science of the future. I think we're going to be seeing this sooner than we all expect. But with that filed, Heather, that means it's time for the two-byte news. <laughs> All right, Heather, what are we talking about in the two-byte news? Alrighty, If you're in the U.S., it's probably, well, while we're filming this, it's evening. And in the Europeans, it's even more evening. Yeah, that's for sure. So, after work, you get home, you're like, oh, I've got some more work. If you have a smartphone and you think you're going to be all smart using it at night. Check my emails. Uh, for work purposes, there's now been a study that's Get a broad way, you know, broad spectrum across U.S. workers that says that people who were monitoring their smartphone for business purposes after 9 p.m. were more tired and less engaged to work the following day. I don't doubt that at all. So more than the study they were looking at says more than half of U.S. adults own a smartphone and consider the device to be among amongst the most important tools ever invented when it comes to increasing productivity <laughs> or knowledge base at work. And the National Sleep Foundation also says eh, 40% of people aren't getting enough sleep on the average night. And often that is cited for smartphone usage at work hmm. for work purposes. Mm-hmm. So what the study did was they said they went and did 82 different upper-level management, um, make uh, multiple different surveys every day for two weeks. Then there was a second survey that did a little over 160 employees in various occupations from nursing to manufacturing to accounting to dentistry. And they showed that across the board, nighttime smartphone, smartphone use usage for business purposes 
was cutting into sleep and sapping energy needed for the next day of work. Yeah. And in fact, sort of comparing it against other electronic devices, such as, uh, and seeing that they even had more of a negative effect than watching television or using laptops, uh, tablet computers. Mm. Because, well, one, it's obviously, it's keeping you mentally engaged at that point. But smartphones emit uh, blue light. And blue light is the most disruptive of all the colors of light when it's trying to settle you down. So it hinders uh, melatonin. That's the chemical in the brain that promotes sleep. Yeah. So It seems doing like that, tablets would do that, or laptops would do that same thing, though. I think it's... Maybe it's the nature similar, of the work on the smartphone? It's, it's like, similar of nature, but at a certain point, the screen itself of the smartphone, yeah. I believe, is more is set up so that it's more concentrated in such a way right. that it produces more blue light than your average. Gotcha. Wow, I never even thought about that. I know I pay attention to that with my computer monitors. I use a program called uh, F.Lux. And if you mm-hmm. ever get like a, towards the end of the night, you, if you have eye strain, it's hard to look at the screen or you get headaches. F.Lux changes the color temperature of the screen from that blue to a to a more of an orange kind of tone when the sun sets so when the sun ah. sets the screen tones all change and i found that uh not necessarily this is necessarily not necessarily a good thing but i found that i could look at my screen much much later than i used to be able to without being excruciating and i've i you know i i think a lot of people do the smartphone thing heather i think a lot of people check their phone like when they wake up yep. or check their phone right before they go to bed and right before they're trying to go to sleep they're staring right at that screen yeah no obviously the people in the study said you know what there's obviously going to be Situations where saying, nope, it's after 9 p.m., flip phone over, bye, guys. Mm, that's that, what that I do. That might have negative consequences or disastrous effects for specific jobs. You know what? You can't help it. Yeah. There are some cases where when the phone rings, you glare at it, you growl at it, and you have to look at it, and you have to answer it, and you have to figure out what's going on. But whenever possible, it's one of those things where specifically don't. They're saying more and more to avoid the kind of, you know, after a certain time of night, avoiding, you know, computers and television and all that kind of things. Of course, right. that's not going to really, really happen. Not so super much. practical for a lot of people like myself. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, I'm pretty much I look at the computer until about 10 minutes before I go to bed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, uh, I. I, I, if I, if there's a night though where I knew I really, really wanted to get a great night's sleep, I kind of think of it the same way I think about coffee. I don't drink coffee after about two, three o'clock. And yeah. I, it's not that dramatic with smart devices or computers, but like say about eight thirty, nine o'clock, I make kind of like a, if I really want to get a great night's sleep that night, like Saturday night sometimes when I, because I usually am trying to get a catch up a little sleep before Sunday morning, I'll, uh, I'll go to bed early. And that's one of my techniques is about eight thirty, I stop looking at screens. Yeah. Yes, it helps. Now, uh, Heather, this is a science podcast, but every now and then we got to talk a little bit about the science behind some sports ball. And this next story is perfect because the Super Bowl is coming right up. I know. I specifically went out of my way to (laughs) find something football related. You're a good sport, Heather. Yes, because we're really, really sporty around here. (laughs) Sports. Yay. Theater of the mind. How I really try to look excited. But no, this is some. So. If you're at some Super Bowl party on Sunday and you really want to look like super smart. Right. There you go. Because, you know, if if you're not. Everybody gonna, loves a little science talk at the Super Bowl. Of course. Why not? What else are you going to talk <laughs> why about? Why wouldn't you? 
But there is uh, – <laughs> you're making this harder to talk. <laughs> okay. So obviously one of the big things with uh, football and with uh, safety, there's going to be uh, – football, safety, and science can all kind of come together in the helmet. Because guess what? Brains get smashed in a like literal way. There have been concussions. There have been obviously big hot button issue from you know the PB leagues all the way up to the professionals. And so what they're going through is there's now these um, specific sensors that they're building to put into helmets themselves. Mm-hmm. And the ones that I was the ones that I found were ones that you put them inside the pads and they um, remotely can talk to the uh, to a tablet or a computer wirelessly, send their inver- send the data wirelessly to a tablet or computer that possibly the coach has on the sidelines or whatever. Sure. And so that the coach can actually see exactly how much force has been hit on this specific play, how much has been going on over time. And so maybe you could have the option to be like, yeah, you, you think that wasn't a whole bunch, but guess what? You've been knocked down four times in the last half hour. Now you've hit your... Here, hit your limit. Come over here and sit down for a little while. So your brain needs a break. Every pad or, or or a lot of the pads become sensors, and then they, they aggregate impact data, and then the coach can make a database decision on the state of his player's health. Yeah. That's kind With, of awesome. You know, and it's it'd be interesting because on these, especially these big games, and you've got a number of different players out there. The coach, every coach is not going to be able to see, have an eye on every single player at all times. Right. So then you're going to be able to say this is kind of an extra layer of, oh, hey, I didn't realize you got, you know, hit down that last, you know, play or whatever. So you can kind of get a, a better idea of what's going on and for safety reasons, be able to pull somebody or say, wow, you did get hit. You're down. Now we know exactly what happened. So we can for that, you know, can go with you to your doctor or you can possibly stop something before you may have to get another one hit too many. I, I kind of agree with Hammy in a sense, like with he's he's jokingly saying hack the helmet, but you know what a major story would be is if the coach of another team somehow got the wireless password or something uh-huh. and was able to get the stats for the competing team and so he oh, knew where to where the pain points were. <laughs> That'd be oh a big my story. Gosh. <laughs> All right, well <laughs> You never know. I mean, if that happens, yeah. we'll cover it here on SciBite. That'll be a science. Yeah, story. that 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 would be a crossover episode. Yeah, it'd be a tech That'd snap be... crossover episode between yeah, the security. I was <laughs> well, Heather, I have uh, I have good news and I have bad news. Okay. I have a button here on the SciBite 2000. Uh, this will either convert our main deflector dish into an interplexing beacon and contact the Borg hundreds of years before we're supposed to make contact, or oh. it's a spacecraft update. Here we go. <laughs> Good news. You know, I moved the warp core button and then the interplexing beacon button shows up. But Heather, See, what is going on? Maybe this maybe this Chinese rover uh, needs a Cybite 2000 board. Uh, Cybite rover. Uh, sorry. The poor little Chinese rover is having a good day, bad day right now. Yeah. This is good news, bad news for the poor little rover. It, uh, one I had recently, I had already had in there something that says, oh, you know, they just sent back their, you know, they're releasing their first color panorama and it's kind of interesting because then the whole article is like, hey, the dirt actually kind of looks more brown than a lot of the Apollo stuff. Granted, it's not completely, you know, black and white, but they thought it was kind of odd. I just assumed but, that was the color or like the yeah, color. Yeah, that's yeah. the color balance. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what the person in the story was thinking. And I would believe that very, very easily. Yeah. Because you can, if you look at the big panorama, the major object in the screen color-wise is the Chinese flag. was a giant red block. And if they're going to fix the color, they're probably going to fix it so that the flag is nice and pretty in red. Which will throw off all the color for everything else. That's true. Or it could. Yeah, it could. Now, the sad part is, uh, remember we were talking about poor little Rover and saying, oh my gosh, yeah, survives the first lunar night. That's going to be something big because it gets so cold and it's really, you know, it has a hard time. And it woke up from its first night and everything was happy. And right, right before the second lunar night, which we are in right now, it hit a problem. Uh Uh-oh. Yep, so... Obviously, sometimes uh, details on these type of things are sketchy and hard to find or... Influx. (laughs) Influx, and the Chinese government is not necessarily going to save or share all of the oops things that are going on until Mm -hmm. they know exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they have their complete ability to clam up as long as they want. Mm -hmm. But what we do know is that there has been an, an abnormality that... About six weeks into, you know, their mission, that something happened, what they quoted as, quote, due to complicated lunar surface environment. Gee, something happened on the moon. Um, Yeah, that's pretty generic. Yeah, what they think is, is that one of the solar panels did not fold back onto, over the mast, which is what happens during the night. They fold the solar panels back over the mast so that it kind of into a horizontal position to sort of keep um, a little box to warm to uh, into a warmed box to shield and protect all the, you know, some of the in- scientific equipment and things during the lunar night temperatures. Cause they have a little radiostopic uh, heater, but they kind of fold the solar panels over to kind of help keep that, keep just enough heat in there to be able to get away with it. Now, since one of them did not fold over properly, um, it could mean disaster for any of the mass-mounted instruments. The electronic systems, uh, the color navigation cameras, the high-gain antenna. Either way, we it happened just prior to the second, quote, lunar night, um, which is about 14 days long, Earth days long. So there is no communication with it during the lunar night. So we really won't, it's in sleep mode. Now, that was the last thing that we saw, that it was trying to go to sleep mode. Mm. No one will actually know what happened or if we'll be able to resume communication until, we just got about two weeks from now, so February 8th to 9th. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. In the meantime, there are probably a few people that are slightly nervous about what's going on over in China. Yeah. For their poor little rover. Well, they can just run over there and check it out, right? Just uh, um, send the repairman and... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of uh, terrains that are hard to send the repairman to, are you ready to do a curiosity update? I am ready. And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. Receive on So how is curiosity doing? Hopefully in a little bit better condition. Yes, he's doing in a little bit better condition, yes. All of Mars right now is actually kind of prepping for an upcoming Mars comet. 
There oh, like is, to get pictures or, or what? Yes, they're actually going to be able to take pictures and do things of that nature. Cool. Now, there is Comet uh, Siding Spring. It's going to be coming up here in October, later this year. But it's actually going to be closer. It's this. It's going to fly 10 times closer to Mars than any identified comet has ever flown past Earth. Whoa. This is going to be flying really nearby Mars. That is a serious fact, show. Holy smokes. No wonder they're going to be able to get pictures of it. Yeah. Now, they're also starting right now because... They'd really need to identify exactly where it's going to be and exactly when and watching how much dust is going to be shot off on this because it's going to be so close that it could endanger orbiting spacecraft Oh, yeah. around Mars. Yeah, like the, rec- like the reconnaissance orbiter. Yep, exactly. The dust particles themselves could threaten any of the or- any of those uh, spacecraft. Do you want now, to say warp really- core? It's, it's cool. <laughs> Now, we won't know for months until exactly what, you know, danger levels or okay. risk levels we're looking at. Um, but they're kind of already starting to get there in as much uh, data as they can ahead of time. It's it's so, fascinating how we are living a little bit of a life on another planet in, 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 mm-hmm. a, in an odd, weird, remote sense. But it's like we're considering the things that happen over there and it's it's kind of amazing. And, yeah. uh, and that I mean, you figure, okay, so you say on October 19th, yep. yeah, they're definitely getting their ducks in a row, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Well, for one, because it's going to be so close and because right now it's letting off a lot more dust than we think it would. Mm. So it seems like it's a very, very dusty, oh. icy thing. And so depending on how bad it is when it gets to Mars, then... um. What can you do for the any of the spacecraft? Can you the move rover, something or like the? Can, yeah, the can rovers it, themselves, yeah. the atmosphere is going to be thick enough that mm-hmm. they'll be safe. They might be able to, as far as they can tell right now, it's going to hit during daytime for where the rovers are. But otherwise, they might even be able to look up and see, you know, a meteor meteors from this guy, almost. Um, but it's going to be daytime, so yeah, not so much. They won't be able to really see a good show, but. The orbiters, yeah, you have to say, all right, well, they're built for some sort of space dust risk, you know, so they have a little bit of that. Yeah. But depending on how bad it's going to be, it depends on, all right, then they'll just rotate and keep the sensitive stuff in the, you know, in a safe location. Or if it's going to be really bad, then change its complete orbit so it'll be time it so that they're all on the opposite side of Mars. When the comet path makes it close by. Right, that makes sense. But now, for that, the farther ahead you look, it takes a lot less fuel to change orbit. Ah, ah, that's part so, of the cleverness of the of the master planner. That does make sense. Yeah, so if you start now and say, all right, we may need to, we start a month ahead and say, yeah, we really have to change the orbit, then yeah. you have a month's worth of time to Gently adjust rather than adjust, yeah. smash the brakes or hit the gas and be like, ah. <laughs> All right, Heather. Well, speaking of hitting the gas, why don't you jump in my uh, time machine, which is fueled by gasoline, because it's a really great uh, portable store of energy. Let's just be honest about it. And uh, let's go back and close the door, Heather. Here we go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is feeling about 200 years right here. This bumpiness. This is the 200-year bump. Right, right. 
Oh, there it is. Oh, <laughs> hit my yeah. head a little bit. That's okay. It takes us to uh, 203 years ago. Called it February 1st, 1811. Heather, what happened this week in science? The Bell Rock Lighthouse was lit for the first time. Now, this might not be able to really know about this one, but it is built on this incredibly treacherous sandstone reef, mm. which, except for the lowest of low tides, for like a couple of hours at a time, all you can see is this one pillar of rock just big enough for this lighthouse to be sticking out of the ocean. How did the they do that? That's amazing. It was insane. It is regarded as one of the finest lighthouses ever built because... In 203 years, it has never needed to be fixed. Wow. They have never had to go through and fix any of the the work on it. That, is thing, that, is, that thing is that's kind of amazing if you think about the age of this thing and some of the storms oh, yeah. this thing has seen. Yeah, it's there's this really treacherous reef just below the the water's, you know, edge. And so they were able to you know, put this out there and, you know, it, obviously it's had uh, electricity and things like that have changed in the last 203 years. But the cement work and all that, that was just so well designed and so carefully made when they first put it up. That is, even in the incredibly treacherous location that it is, they don't... They haven't needed to fix it, which that really made it the that gave it the uh, the check mark on the be able to get uh, mentioned list. Yeah, no kidding. That's pretty impressive. That shows you a little uh, really well applied science can go a long way. All right, Heather, I'm going to recalibrate the side by 2000. That way we can look up into the sky this week. All right. On the whole this week, we have the planet Mercury about 45 minutes after sunset. You'll be able to see it in the low west to southwest skies. Uh, the moon will be moving kind of through that area uh, this week, kind of changing each day as you go along, moving the in relation the <laughs> location in relation to the moon, moving every every day as we go along. Venus is in the morning hours in the east to southeast, getting a little bit higher each day. Mars is hanging about 11 p.m., about five degrees to the lower right of Spica, a blue giant variable star, both highest in the sky around 4 a.m. So you got Mars and Spica, that's blue and red, or orange, up, uh, and that's five degrees is about one uh, fist uh, held at arm's length. And Jupiter is in the eastern skies in the evenings, overhead around 10 p.m., and in the western sky in the morning. It's heading out all night long. Saturn... It's around 1 or 2 a.m. rising in the south to southwest to the far left of Mars and Spica. That's a good show. That's a good show. And, of course, Heather has all of it, all of it. I say all of it outlined, including everything we've talked about in the show notes. Just go over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Find episode 117. Scroll down. You'll get everything. And the uh, up in the sky stuff is towards the bottom of the show notes. Heather, is there anything else we want to cover this week? Not that I can think of. All right. Well, then that wraps us up. Now, Cybite is live on Tuesdays. We did. We moved to Wednesday this week to make room for the State of the Union, but we'll be back at our regular day next week. Head over to jblive.tv to catch us there. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get it in your local time zone. Heather, thanks for the great show. Thank you. 
Thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week's episode of SciBite. Don't forget you can contact us by going over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and clicking that contact link or tweeting over at Heather, JB underscore Mars underscore base. All right, everyone. Thanks so much. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>